0: it's almost cringeworthy when I think about how nervous I was like going to those initial writers rounds and just like, hi, um, I, I think in right. Like just not even trying to make friends out of thin air. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was rough, but it also has led to relationships that are rock solid. Um, and, and gave me a lot of courage. Like, I feel like even that i I keep coming to the whole like pushing yourself out of your comfort zone apparently that's a theme in my life um but i i really honestly believe that pushing myself to be that uncomfortable that early on was really a game changer for me and actually it was something that i you know i had interesting discussions with my parents about because you know they would get worried sometimes and not too much you know i had family in town so they knew that i wasn't just gonna fall off the deep end but there were times where you know they were like do you want us to come out and like help you book shows like so that it's also not taking away from your studies and like come with you and i i i actually pushed back and i went no like i actually i don't think i'm gonna grow if you all do that
1: All right, welcome to The Paths of Stilt. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Hi, everybody. And we're happy to have Lockwood Barr. She's a country music recording artist. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So (laughs) if you would, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, kind of what you do right now, and then we'll dive into your story.
0: Yeah, um, so I grew up uh, just outside of San Francisco, so not necessarily a hotbed for country music, (laughs) Um, but I had, I I come from a very musical family. Um, My mom grew up in Nashville and was sang professionally for a time and when she was younger, and and then my dad uh, was a banjo player, and in addition to being a businessman and everything, but so I actually play his banjo uh, I have his gibson r b two fifty from nineteen seventy two with me in nashville. It's my wow. main um, instrument, and so, even growing up in San Francisco, I had a very country music bluegrass heavy um childhood um but it was it was fun in the sense also that. San Francisco's a really EDM-heavy culture, too. Uh, I was a big musical theater buff. So there were a lot of different sort of eclectic influences that sort of infiltrated my songwriting. Um, I also loved a, an Irish group called The Cores growing up. So it was a, sort of just a smattering of everything. Um, and, yeah, and I grew up in a house where, like, we had, I think, we, I say we had, we have still. Like, when I go home to visit my parents, there's, like, 17 instruments in our house. We've got two pianos. Wow three or four banjos, four guitars. I mean, it's just my mom's dulcimer from the 70s because it was the 70s and everyone played a dulcimer. So, um, you know, and we would just spend nights around the piano just belting music out. And, you know, we, I sang in church every Sunday and the whole thing. And so it just, you know, all that is to say, like anyone who knew me as a kid is really not surprised that this <laughs> is what I'm doing now. Sure. I didn't really have, like starting from age five, it's like even uh, going to college, you know, I went, came to Nashville to go to Vanderbilt, um, cause all my or cousins went to Vanderbilt. So I had to go too. And even then, you know, I really like I, I graduated and got my degree, but like, I still was just like, I think the only thing I'm trained to do really <laughs> is write and sing. Um,
1: so you said you are about five when you first got involved?
0: I mean, that's as far back as I can remember, but I think it's one of those old cliches of like the whole singing before you're talking thing, just cause yeah. you know, you're, it's sort of, when you're when you're that little, it's kind of monkey see, monkey do. And all I saw and heard when my parents were home was music. Um, and my sister and I grew up singing together. And so it's, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's been my whole life. There's never, like I said, there's never been a plan B. <laughs> um, so, yeah.
1: And so when did you, did you have a decision early on that you were going to pursue music or did it just come about later?
0: I did, it was the kind of thing where like, I have never, it's, I've never, I I was never going to do anything else, kind of. The only other thing I was possibly going to do uh, was, um, was Broadway auditions. And I, you know, I was, a, I grew up tap dancing as well. And I um, used to dance in festivals in New York and stuff like that. And so that was, but, but even then it was always performing, um, just put me on a stage. And it was that typical, like, I think I got, I think it was about middle school that you know, I had raging hormones and these emotions and no one could possibly understand me. And so I started writing music, you know, like it wasn't even it was just like, oh, well, that's what I'll do. Like, I didn't keep a journal. I wrote songs and no one told me to. Like even. And what's funny is my mom told me after I started writing, writing music, she's like, oh, well, I wrote music growing up. She never shared it like she was secretive. But yeah, it was just something where I was like, well, obviously, that's what I'm going to do now. Like, it was like, oh, like, well, today I'm going to write a song. The end. Like it just sort of. Um, you know, kind of unfolded that way. I think it's, I heard a saying, I I really, I should have, I should have looked this up before the podcast, because I feel like I've quoted this three times this week. Um, But there's a famous quote about like successful people figuring out what they're good at and just honing in on it. And, and I think for me, this always just felt really natural. Like, you know do engineers and computer scientists make a great living yeah i sucked at that like i wasn't even like this was just sort of what happened for me and where i kept finding myself and um yeah so
1: (laughs) so when you look back at those early songs do they hold up in your opinion or were they kind of
0: of (laughs) (laughs) some of them do some of them i look back and I feel like God gave it gave them to me and I don't know how a 12-year-old came up with them and then others are just like oh nope I was 12 definitely 12 <laughs> um, but we have a we have a saying in Nashville like that there's a song in the air and you just have to reach up and grab it and I and I think that's always been true of my writing and and what I've learned sort of from the greats and as I started to get into bigger writing rooms here in Nashville is you know, there's almost like a spiritual surrender that happens when you enter a room. And yes, you have to get down to the grind and work and focus, but there is this sense of surrender where you're like, okay, what's out there? What is calling to us? What melody keeps popping in our heads? What are, you know, and you sort of just like flow down a river. You don't want to, you don't want to fight what's happening. And there's definitely been days where I've gone in and been like, I really want to write a ballad. And then I'll, you know, my co-writer and I get down to business. And even though I might've been all like sad and you know angsty when I walked in a really happy song came out and that's just what was meant to come out that day um so yeah
2: prior to
0: uh moving to Nashville
2: and going to Vanderbilt did you take any formal lessons or was it a lot just
0: kind of practicing playing writing on your own um all of the above so I grew up in i sang in church choir and did all the Christmas pageants, school plays. Um, And then I also sang in a community choral group, Singers of Marin. And um, that was honestly some of my most intense training. Our our choir director, Jan Peterson Schiff, um, had conducted all over the world. Like she conducted the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and everything and somehow we got lucky and had her as this like local (laughs) community (laughs) choir director. Um, And she was like that tough football coach that everybody had that you read about giving like the pep talks on the field where like she's so hard on you but like brings the best out of you. And um, and so, you know, when I think about, um, especially like how much I love to stack harmonies and stuff like that and all the, the choral training has contributed immensely to my career. And I learned that from my mom as well cause she was um, a big choir buff uh, too. And actually still will sing in the Singers Marin adult choir. Um, certain seasons. Um, Yeah and then I think there the big turning point for me was uh, probably high school. Uh, We were really blessed with great arts programs at the high school that I went to as well and so I was in both the theater and the music department and um, in so many ways they saved my life because it was a really affluent area and so even though my parents were my biggest cheerleader and everyone theoretically said like, yes, the arts are wonderful. There were a lot of mixed messages coming out. And I, and I think this is a you know really sort of a cultural moment for the United States and frankly, the world where we have this college ranking system and you have to fit in a box and get certain test scores. And like, there's this very singular version of what quote unquote success looks like
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, and that became very apparent to me in high school because even you know even my own parents who are so musical and to this day are my biggest cheerleaders even they at some points were like don't tell us you don't have time for sports when you just come home and write music for four hours and I'm like what do you what do you mean like I don't want to play sports yeah but sports are going to get you into college you know and I was hearing this and they weren't meaning to like push down my creative needs they were just that's what they felt would give me the most opportunity. And that was the messaging our society, you know, like play a varsity sport, get these grades, take 20 AP courses, you know, whatever it is. And, and it really started eating at me. And I really believe the arts programs at my school and the community, you know, I don't say that lightly, they saved my life and really gave me an outlet and sort of plucked me out of oblivion, if you will. I mean, my theater program let me score a musical. <laughs> like where where does that happen at a high school level and this this program was like yeah that sounds great let's do it like they were in and they just and i didn't even ask them they just noticed that i was musically inclined and these precious teachers like you know wrapped me under their wing and then my the head of the music department mr Mattern, saw me sing an original at a one of the talent shows and was like you need to be in my class and that's and he his music program was really heavily commercial and so that's where I got a lot of my initial training on just getting used to singing in a mic you know and understanding sound systems and sort of going from just writing songs with piano at home to like actually getting out and playing live like our um our end of year concerts and stuff like he'd find a local venue and we'd put on a professional show um so yeah i mean it was sort of a a mix of all of the above and those programs really um shaped me and helped sort of give me a thicker skin sort of against all the mixed messaging coming out about what was expected especially because like the san francisco bay area is so affluent and like i said like even my parents who were my biggest cheerleaders they were just trying to give their children every chance they could possibly have and what society was telling them was not arts or or if you wanna do arts, you also have to get A's in the sciences and do all this, you know, it's just this very like, and it doesn't equal happiness. It doesn't always equal success, but I don't, I think that we've kind of gotten blinded by it now. It's like ever since college has started those stupid rankings, it, that's all that we think about. And that, what does that even mean, you know?
1: It's sure. And didn't you say that at least at one point you at least one of your parents, if not both, made a living with music?
0: yeah my mom she would come back uh when she was an undergrad she would come back home from college and um she sang in festivals she actually backed up the dillards Uh, she sang on stage with john hartford um and yeah and i mean was just and to this day is a fierce musician i mean just unbelievable but then she went to business school and met my dad and thank goodness, cause here I am. <laughs> you know, yeah, and I think about that too, of like how even in a family that was so musical and even in a family where from day one, they really believed it was a real career. It wasn't just a cute choice. Mm-hmm. Even in that setting, there was still so much pressure from the outside world, that it still, um, yeah, it still got overwhelming. Like I still felt like there wasn't necessarily a path for me. Um, even though that's all the only path I'd ever followed, ironically. So you know, it's just it's it's strange. So I'm lucky to I'm lucky to have had the to grow up in the family that I did. But I also that didn't um, necessarily make me immune to sort of the the crazy world we're in right now. Yeah.
1: Sure. And when did you pick up the banjo?
0: I would mess around. I sort of picked it up almost through osmosis, I would say, just cause you know you see mm-hmm. someone playing all the time and that was my dad, like that was just how he would unwind. And so I picked it up a little bit in high school, um, but then it really was in college that I got serious about it because my dad, I asked my dad because I was starting to get more, you know, obviously coming to Nashville, like it was, you know, my songwriting desires were just exploding. And um, I just asked him if I could take, we have this little baby banjo, a little Aida, um, it's probably worth $17, but I just adore it. I still have it downstairs. Um, and I just asked him sort of offhanded, like, Hey, is anyone using that? Like, can I take it with me to Vanderbilt? <laughs> and, um, and nobody wanted, like my sister had bought her own banjo at that point. Like it was sort of the unclaimed instrument. And so everyone was like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't think they noticed I took it with me at some point. And, um, my parents came out to visit for a weekend and, um, saw me perform with it. And they were just like, <laughs> is <that our> banjo? <laughs> you play, like, when did, how did we miss that? I was like, what do you mean? How did you miss that? Like, I, what do you think I've been staring at for my entire childhood? <laughs> um, yeah, and so then when I graduated, um, for the past few years I've studied uh, with an amazing banjo player, Ned Lubarecki, because um, I decided, you know, osmosis is great, and there's so much that's informal about Nashville and storytelling and whatever. But it was be it was also becoming such a part of my identity as a person, like because I-, I just love it so much, and I love talking about my dad and everything. That I was like, okay, I need to sit down with somebody and like formally learn the scales, you know, things like that, the way I did on the piano, kind of almost moved backwards. Um, so, yeah, and my dad actually got so excited. We They came out to visit, and he spent a weekend, like, nerding out with Ned. Um <laughs> And like it was like one of those things where I introduced them, and then suddenly I was invisible, and they were <laughs> they came from like the same Baltimore town and bought their banjos at the same store, and I was like, hey, you guys don't need me like bye um so it's really so, so a lot of you know friendships have bloomed out of it, but um yeah, so banjo's been and on it this is i i don't know if this sounds weird, and maybe other musicians or even artists, painters, artists of any kind will probably relate to this, but when I get nervous, um I get nauseous, like I can't eat like whatever. Mm-hmm. And banjo, I think, because it is the the nature of how rhythmic it is and the picking patterns mm-hmm. are how repetitive, it is my best anti-nausea tool. I kid there's you. Actually, not. a lot of really good science behind that.
2: Not yeah. the banjo, the rhythm that you're talking about. <laughs> yeah,
0: the, the repetitive sort of rote muscle memorization. Like, there's something that just like, especially like my first. I realized it. I learned it at my first year at CMA Fest when I was just like you know, I felt like it was like one of those postcards where you have like a bunch of cats and then all of a sudden there's this like fluffy dog and you're like, one of these does not belong. And I like 200% (laughs) felt like that. Like I was just like, who let me into this festival? Like what is going on? And, you know, and I, I would just like sit backstage and just, and then I would start to realize I'd pull my banjo out and just. So it was ever since then, I'm like, oh. Worse.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to buy all my clients who experience nerves a Jeff. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> <don't
0: love> <laughs>
1: so my impression is that you had aspirations to be a musician professionally when you did move to Nashville. So oh, you yeah. came to Vanderbilt in part for that.
0: Oh yeah. Um, and I wanted, you know, I thought about, so Belmont's I actually, I didn't major in music, um, but I think I just wanna, I took music courses. Like I got my vitamins and minerals. I did music theory and music lit and all that. Um, but you know, when I was deciding, cause Belmont has a big commercial, like they have like an industry school, but I just, I kind of wanted, I felt like Vanderbilt would kick my butt and make me uncomfortable. Like I felt like the classical music theory stuff was the, the stuff that I wasn't gonna teach myself or learn by getting out and gigging. And so I felt like it was a great, um, I don't know how to sort of leaping pad, if you will. I met a lot of really fascinating people. Um, It really took me out of my comfort zone. The coursework took me out of my comfort zone. Um, And then when I wasn't in class, I was booking shows. So, um, and also once again, I think I mentioned this, like all my cool older cousins went to Vanderbilt. And so I was, you know, there was part of me that was like, well, and my freshman dorm was across the street from sony so it wasn't like i was missing a lot like, felt very much felt like you know i weaseled my way into i can i convinced my um the dean of the school of uh, education that i was in that uh an internship with a music publisher would be like really good for my coursework i don't know how i look back and i'm like why did the- i did it though like <laughs> but, so. what was
2: your major
0: Uh, Child studies, which was a mix of child psych and education philosophy, Um, which honestly, like, I feel like that made me a better writer, too, just studying human nature and Mm -hmm. um, how we function and human connection and everything. It was, I, to this day, absolutely adore it. Um, I still have a lot of my original textbooks and everything with me. I'm a book hoarder for sure, (laughs) so and because it was not the school of music like I would tell my professors like well I'm worried about the paper this week because I have three shows and like there was always one that would be like can I come you can turn your paper (laughs) so milked that a couple times for sure (laughs) don't don't tell mom
1: (laughs) so how did you you did you already have connections as far as songwriting when you arrived in Nashville or did you have to develop those when you got here
0: not really and I think that was such a great part of sort of the whole theme of getting outside of my comfort zone like i think back to baby 16 17 year old me i was i think i was 17 when i got to vandy i was really young for my grade and i it's almost cringeworthy when i think about how nervous i was like going to those initial writers rounds and just like hi um i I think and red, like just not even trying to make friends out of thin air and um yeah i mean it was uh, it was rough but it also has led to relationships that are rock solid um and and gave me a lot of courage like i feel like even that i, I keep coming to the whole like pushing yourself out of your comfort zone apparently that's a theme in my life um, but i i really honestly believe that pushing myself to be that uncomfortable that early on was really a game changer for me and actually it was something that i you know i had interesting discussions with my parents about because you know they would get worried sometimes and not too much you know i had family in town so they knew that i wasn't just gonna fall off the deep end but there were times where you know they were like do you want us to come out and like help you book shows like so it's also not taking away from your studies and like come with you and i i i actually pushed back and i went no like i actually i don't think i'm gonna grow if you all do that um And I wanted to be taken seriously um, as an adult and not be someone that, even though I knew how hard I was working, I just, I didn't want to be someone that appeared to be fed stuff on a silver spoon. Like I was really proud of how far I'd come and, you know, maybe that was foolish and stubborn and I should have accepted more help along the way, but I really love where I'm at now. And I I think all of that discomfort was worth it. Um, And like I said, like, I feel like God put the right people in my path along the way. Um, you know, I have really amazing musical family members and people that have just kept me safe and encouraged me along and, you know, gotten me in the right rooms and made sure everything was going well. And so it all, it all worked out. I'm, I'm alive and well today.
1: So. <laughs> and you talked about being timid on those early uh, writing sessions. Um, yeah. I'm the type of person that I, I do okay like the first time it's the second or third time I always get nervous I'm like are they gonna like me as much as like we hit it off really well are they gonna like me this time oh, sorry, my to be social... honest, I like
0: well you know what's funny is in in, in the Vanderbilt um, co-writing scene you know there's all these sort of like unspoken rules you learn um, about entering a writing room and what's polite and I was to be honest I was sort of perplexed by co-writing when I first got here because I grew up writing alone and I was like why is Nashville like obsessed with this co-writing thing it's gonna sound terrible but like at a point I was like <sighs> This is just for people who like don't know how to write, and they just have to put themselves. Like I didn't, I didn't understand sort of the beauty of collaboration and what it, how much more it means beyond just the write itself and all the relationships. Um, but you know, one of the unspoken rules that I learned early on that some people advised me on is they were like, don't get too married to a line. Like when you're in a room, you have to put your ego aside, and you know, let what's best for the song happen. And even if your line doesn't make it in, you, your personality still contributed to, you know, and whatever. But I, I laughed because I was like, oh, I have the opposite problem. Like, I'll get in a, a room with somebody who has a number one hit and be like, oh, my God, don't, I can't, I'm so sorry I even opened my mouth. Like, <laughs> um, so I'm the opposite. Like, I'm super timid at first. And then over time, like, it's just like, you really like me? And then, like, my whole personality will come out Um but yeah (laughs) what was
2: it like uh in the early days of kind of going out there and trying to get you know live performances and and doing those shows
0: oh god it was i i almost feel like that sort of level of risk taking it it was almost like building a new muscle um and so in the early days i kid you not like i would make a phone call to book just a writer's round like a, a small acoustic show in nashville and I would get off the phone and I, then I would, I would hang up and then I just like <sighs> lie on my bed like that, like physically took it out of me. And then like, I was like, okay, I'm done for the night. Like, that's it. <laughs> and I, You know, I think some of it was like a self-worth thing of, you know, I think so many artists will tell you that we all have imposter syndrome. Like, I mean, I have a friend that had several cuts this year um, on the Sony record and he'll still call me and be like, do you have time to write for me? I'm like, yeah. Like you're, are you kidding? You don't think you're successful, you know? And so it just doesn't matter, but it's one of those funny things. And so, you know, especially when I was new to the scene and, and wasn't, I think, fully confident of my worth, if you will. Um, that would really, I mean, it really was building a new muscle. Like, and now I don't even think about it. Like, I'll just like you know, I'll email a festival and be like, Hey, I'm really good. Put me on your line. You know, like it just, but that took time. Um, and it was just, it was mentally and literally at times physically exhausting. Um, but I think it got easier, not only as sort of that muscle grew and I just straight up got used to it. Like it just became a normal occurrence to call and book yourself or email and book yourself. But I think I also somewhere along the way did find my worth and And I think that was another thing that I needed to do that separate of my family where as supportive as they were, I was like, I have to do this to figure out who I am as an artist and I can have you guys tell me I'm good till you're blue in the face, but to some degree, I have to learn it for myself sort of out in the real world Um, and find my voice like, I definitely have pieces of my parents, both of my parents in me but We sing completely. I'm like a '70s rocker chick, and my mom is like this stunning operatic soprano, you know. And so it's like I had to, I had to figure out my voice, and part of that was taking the risk of asking to get in a writing room, asking to get on a stage, you know, whatever it was at that moment. So,
2: did it shift your your music also? Because you mentioned kind of being from where you were in California and the exposure you had to different types of music. Um, did it did moving to Nashville kind of shift your music or did it help stabilize it what was that like I
0: think I mean I don't know if this makes sense but I think a little bit of both I think a shift as far as especially being in writers rooms I learn it's like going to college all over again you know because you're with people that are you might be with somebody who is lyrical genius and you almost are just sitting there observing like it you know and then but there are other times where i'll sit down one of my favorite co-writers is this guy harlan Pease, and he is a brilliant blues guitarist and plays things on the guitar that i just i'm not trained to do i'll never that'll never be my jam and i love sitting in a room with him and so in that sense co-writing has Completely expanded my view of what kind of music I can sing and it's people like Harlan that helped me find this sort of 70s rocker vibe that I have now They really kind of showed me myself. So then on that side co-writing As it expanded my view it also I think the word you use was stabilized at the same time It was both expanding and stabilizing like I would have these people that once again once again, took me out of my comfort zone. But then we're also a mirror back because, you know, um, and I found this going on tour as well, both co-writing and going on tour, you're you're sort of, you're just basically surrounded by mirrors. And when you start to hear the same thing over and over from people like, oh, your melody lines when you do X, Y, Z are really interesting, or your voice reminds me of these artists, or like you get on the road and you realize that the same songs are getting requested over and over and over again, and they're the more seventies rocker ones. You're like, oh, like, and so it's sort of this now, the world, as you explore and try to expand, the music world also shows you who you are, the more you lean into it um, mm-hmm. so that was that was definitely the case for me
2: mm-hmm.
1: so tell us a little bit about your c m a fest experience you said
0: uh, oh gosh c m a fest well first of all i just i have a love affair with with the c m a in general they're i mean they're how I've got my health care and everything like that like they're just <laughs> wonderful um but c m a festival it it's like a giant summer camp or, like, high school reunion, um, it's become, I was so sad to miss it for COVID this year, but it's become, like, my favorite time of year over the past year because, um, especially with the the new convention center, they set up these huge, beautiful green rooms, and so, you know, you go, you run into someone every morning and catch up over breakfast because you both went on the road and haven't seen each other since, like, a tour stint or the year before at CMA Fest for that fact, um, but uh, it's, It's also exhausting. You know, it's like one of those things where you're just like running on adrenaline for four days. Um, And especially like the very first year I was in it, um, you know, I didn't really have a touring income yet. This was like pre-touring. They had just let me in because I had started working with Jars of Clay and some other things. And so they kind of took a chance on me. But so I was still, a big part of my income was still from this house band that I played at downtown. So I would go straight from my CMA Fest you know press junket or whatever whatever it was i was doing and then i would go straight and perform for a house band so i was i mean it was was paying my bills but it was these 15 hour days and i I almost feel kind of dumb like who voluntarily does that to themselves (laughs) um so now i've learned how to better schedule myself and you know everything like that it's so much fun and the fans i mean there is no and this is the way cma fest has been since it started in the 70s when it was called fanfare like it is truly a groundbreaking festival and I've learned this now as I've been on the road now like I would heard that but especially getting on the road I realized how true it is it is a groundbreaking festival as far as how it connects the artist with the fans um, and there, there is no other festival like it in that sense and I remember one of the most amazing moments was a girl came up to me um, this is probably my second year in the festival and she had driven she tweeted at me and she had driven like 13 hours from New Jersey, I think, or however long that drive is, because of my song "Forgotten How to Cry." And she had listened to it on repeat that whole year, and all she wanted to do was come up and tell me that that song had connected to her, and she had so needed it that year. And I just like I kept it together at the time, but then I had to step into the green room and just cry. Um, wow. you know, like that just, and I still, oh my god, I'm gonna tear up right now. <laughs> you know, like it just, I mean. Cause not to get all like hippie California, but like we're also connected. And, you know, it if if there's an experience in my life that is moving me to write, chances are a lot of other people have had that experience. And it, you know, to have a festival where I can get face to face with that person and not just be taking a selfie, but have an actual conversation with them. Like have a full booth set up where there's security guards and everything, and I can just sit there and talk to them. Um, I mean, it's just it's it it never ceases to amaze me every single year. I hope it's I hope we're I hope we can be back next year.
1: <laughs> sure. That's powerful. <laughs> it's a powerful story. Um, so is that kind of that connection with the audience, is that one of the things that's kind of sustained you over the years as far as oh, yeah, staying yeah. in music?
0: Yeah, I kind of and I, I had another sort of almost light bulb like aha moment actually during COVID. Um, because I also now um uh, assist Peter Cooper, who's a, an amazing music journalist and songwriter here in Nashville um, with the, I assist him with the history of country music class at Vanderbilt, um, which is such a joy. And 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 Peter's so fun too, because like when he's lecturing about Earl Scruggs, like he was actually friends with Earl Scruggs, like <laughs> it's one of those like only in Nashville things. Um, but, you know, I was really grateful when COVID happened, that was a, a, a lifeline to have that employment because all of a sudden all of my tour income went away and you know like that and you know and and having that job has been life-giving for a while because i love country music so much and what i do that i've always loved sharing that with the students and talking to them about my personal experience and you know what it's like to be on the road and so it i but i realized though i got it was about a month into covid and i i was so depressed and i i know everybody was for their own reasons and you know because Covid, It was, I mean, it was just madness or we were watching our world fall apart, but I I think it was, I realized that assisting in the class is life-giving because I have this career that I'm so passionate about. But when you take away the live music component, my heart just drops. Like I can't, because I've kept writing. I've actually, I've written... I mean, more than normal, you know, in in these past few months. And that's, you know, I'm trying to take that as a huge blessing that, you know, there's just, we can't do anything else. So we're writing and I've been, it started out as Zoom writing. Now I'm doing like socially distanced writing where we'll meet at a park or just sit across the room and, Mm -hmm. um, but even being able to write, my heart was just so distraught without the performance aspect to it. Um, I just, I love being on stage. I love playing with my band. It's such a high. Um, actually, I did a segment for RFD TV two weeks ago, um, and the host actually built a stage because the RFD TV studios are shut down for COVID. And so she and her husband, who's a sound engineer, actually built a stage on their property. Wow. Um, and so it was this professional like TV segment, but like at in someone's backyard. It was kind of crazy. But her parents, the host's parents, came out and watched, um, and their in-laws. And so it was just four people. But even then, like, they were laughing at us at the end. They were just like, oh, you know, we hope it's okay. We came out and watched. And, like, our me, my band and I were just like, are you kidding? Just, like, the whole review was
2: amazing.
0: Um, you know, like, I'd, I'd make a little side comment joke, and just to hear live laughter was like, oh, like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, in a way that was, that's, that's been, The depression and sort of how distraught I got was almost a blessing just in the sense of like, it just reminded me and gave me that drive even more of like, you know what, on your toughest days, this season showed you that there really is nothing else you can do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've tried to take that as the silver lining, I guess, Mm -hmm. of just sort of remind, having that sort of almost like rebirth of just like, nope, yep, this is what I'm, (laughs) this is the only thing I can do or else I will just curl up in a ball and slowly wither away. And inspiring message right yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, I, I, we were late because we were trying to decide when to launch the podcast and it was the quarantine of COVID that actually had us launch. so we launched in May and uh, in part to fill that void as you were mentioning
0: absolutely uh, and yeah. there has and I try to look at that I mean it not to underplay how economically devastating and 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 just straight up the number of deaths and everything but you know, there definitely have been some blessings like that. I'm actually, in a weird way, refining the banjo, because I go through different seasons of, like, if I'm touring, I'm not necessarily writing a ton. If I'm writing, I'm not necessarily, you know, whatever it is. Um, And so I've returned to the banjo, in part because COVID made me nauseous. (laughs) It's like the only obvious solution. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think i just try to yeah focus on that positive where like it pushed you to do the podcast or it you know pushed me to take my banjo playing to another level or whatever it is like and just silver linings i'll take them anywhere i find them <laughs> right now i so. think part of it too is even just the
2: the power right from a kind of psychological and and physical Um, sense of being on stage. Years ago, I had a master's student who did his thesis on um, the experience of flow during an onstage performance for musicians. And there was a lot of similarities to what we've uncovered in flow research. But one of the things he found was that the musicians all talked about the addictive part of flow and how you're, you know, that connection, you're striving for that connection that helps you get immersed in that flow experience, but it's also something that you, you
0: chase, and you realize you really need. Oh, absolutely, and yeah, and the other thing I was thinking about, too, is um, you do get into a rhythm of it, like being on stage, and sort of almost giving into that flow, and like letting it happen with the audience, that is almost like playing an instrument in itself like you you start to get you figure out you have your own rhythm for flow and my cousin Al um actually was the one that sort of pointed that out to me he um he tours full time um he's a lead singer for a an Irish rock group and he um you know I he his band was in town and we were talking backstage and I was I think just like right out of college I was a baby as if I'm not a baby now but like you know it was even more of a baby then um but he was, that was his biggest piece of advice was he was like, hone in on what happens when you get into that zone with your band. Because the more locked in you get with your band and you get in that rhythm with the audience, the better it's going to be for the audience, the better it's going to be for your music and how it comes across. And yeah, it's a whole thing. But yeah, no, I, I desperately, I need a, I need a fix.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, as you say that, um, and I don't want to mess it up, so just tell me if you can not answer this but is it is it is one capable of describing that do you go somewhere is it just time stands still or how does it feel for you when you're in that zone
0: Um it's in a it's a dopamine rush I think is the way I I'd, I'd put it um and there's definitely I feel like I become most vulnerable when I'm on stage like in a weird way I'm more myself on stage than off Um, and I, you know, I know a lot of other, there's a lot of artists that have talked about, like my favorite was always, uh, Bette Midler had her alter ego, the divine Miss M. And then, you know, like Beyonce has Sasha Fierce. Um, I have yet to name mine, but there definitely is something, something to that sort of alter ego state that you go into where like, it's like a switch goes off. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm just myself, I'm, I'm in a different zone and I take risks that I would never take just sitting on a couch talking to somebody in casual conversation um but yeah i mean it's a huge dopamine rush there is nothing like like vibing off other musicians and cueing each other and taking a risk um or even just like i found myself on stage like i feel like part of finding myself vocally was touring and i would you know i would go to that zone i would go to that alter ego and start taking all of these vocal risks sort of riffing on the end of a song and be like i didn't even know i could do that <laughs> like you know sort of this like oh it's fun like i that should be a thing i do like whatever it is and so in that vulnerability you take more risks and whatever but i you know i, I definitely also will say that there's sort of the extroverted nature of it, where then I always have to like recharge a little bit after a mm-hmm. show. So I have to make sure, like, I got really into to meditation and I do a lot of like Bible devotionals when I'm on the road, and that kind of like plugs me back in and mm-hmm. so that I can recharge and go do it again the next night. Sure. Yeah.
1: We're pretty experienced with these episodes now, but I think Lauren can attest the first few that we did, we were just both so exhausted at the end <laughs> because of the novelty.
0: Totally, totally it, well, and not even just the novelty, but I mean, I think there, it like I said, I think vulnerability as life-giving as it can ultimately be, it can be exhausting, you know, like it's, it's a beautiful exhaustion and it's so necessary to create art, but it, there is like, and that was something that I, I definitely had to learn too of like, you know, there's in music, even when you have a team working, like I've worked with PR, I've worked, you know, I've had, it, it, not that I've been completely solo, but even then, like, you are when you're an artist you're your own boss Mm -hmm. and it's really important to set boundaries for yourself and that was something that i really had trouble with um initially i think just sort of with that attitude of like well in the music industry if you're not going for it somebody else is and frankly that applies to the whole world i mean we very much have this like dog eat dog like especially in sort of this age of like tech entrepreneurship and everything there's that this attitude of like well you need to get off your butt like we don't we almost brag about not getting sleep. Like, it's like, oh, I'm working so hard. I didn't get any, you know, it's like, it's, it's something you like tell your friends at the bar to sound <laughs> tough. And, um, and I, I talked actually uh, to a nurse about it. Like I was going in for a checkup and I was just like burned out. And, and she was just like, oh, you're a musician, right? And I went, yeah. Like, what does that have to do with it? And she's like, are you kidding? I've seen this a million times. Like you have to slow down. You have to, you have to build boundaries for yourself. And it took a while, like at first it was I felt guilty about it, especially like living with people that would have nine to fives and I'd be like chilling on the couch watching Netflix as they go off to work. And I had to sort of get over the guilt and be like, you have a different job. Like you have to do this for yourself. This is, in a weird way, that is part of work because if you don't sit on the couch and zone out, you're not gonna do well at the venue tonight. Sure. Um, so that was a, a really important lesson too of just like, sometimes you have to just like tune out the world and what it's telling you to do. Not dissimilar to being in high school and everyone telling you to get the perfect SAT score and everything like that. To some degree you have to just like, you have to take care of yourself and trust your gut.
1: Um, And if you don't shut it out, you'll be overwhelmed with the, did I send that email or did I book that show or did I do X, Y, or Z?
0: Well, and that's what this nurse said. She was like, I cannot tell. I mean, what a blessing this nurse was. She was like, I cannot tell you how many talented musicians I've seen, whether they were, big time artists or like utility and backup vocals, like whatever form they were in, the level of burnout that she'd seen. And she was like, this is real. You have to take responsibility for yourself. Um, And that was game changing advice for sure. Because like you said, it's like you'll finish a podcast and you're exhausted. I'll finish a show and I have to recharge. And that is real. And as artists, we have to pay attention to that. Um, and everybody else like you know as a society we need to get over not getting sleep being cool it's not cool it's stupid <laughs> you know
1: and i'm i'm glad you mentioned alter egos because mine is uh, bald brad pitt
0: <laughs> nice that's a good one that's yeah. a good one you so, open
2: the door for him to throw that in there yeah. he kind of waits like every episode to see if of, he could was so
0: not like a path distilled thing like if i <laughs> you guys another time we'll we'll, we'll need to fit the brad Pitt line in there
1: well i've edited out many of them edited out many of them but i do it every episode so she finally told me i needed a better joke or a different joke at least
0: i am i i love a good corny joke
1: (laughs) stick around we have plenty um so i would be remiss if i didn't ask you about uh, i read that you had opened for Wiz khalifa
0: oh yeah yeah um i did at uh the rites of spring festival um right here in nashville um that was cool that was also uh i also opened technically on that lineup was tyler hilton and tyler hilton was sort of at the forefront of the americana movement too like or sort of being categorized as americana i mean americana's like been around since the late 80s but sort of the pop culture first of it if you will um yeah so that was cool but it was one of those things like i didn't talk to it like we were like in the same like Dressing room tent at one point, it was just kind of like we walked by and I like had my little badge, like, hey, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was uh, it's a career
1: milestone for sure.
0: Yeah,
1: and I've worked I'm on uh, the
0: grandkids,
1: <laughs> well, I've worked on a documentary, um, for a different project, and we've had some access to backstages. And the one thing that I was, of course, there's probably things that I wasn't given access to, but the backstages were not nearly as exciting as uh, what I've been led to believe, at least the ones I was in. (laughs) Well,
0: because it is sort of that, like, recharge moment of, like, the artist is either, like, trying to, like, get themselves in the zone for stage or they just got off stage and they just like want someone to hand them a beer.
1: (laughs) Everyone's eating or having a beer, but there's really nothing more than that.
0: No, it's not like this, this sort of Hollywoodized, like, you know, just, you know, someone fanning you eating grapes, having a party and talking to like, it's like, no, it's so it's the least glamorous part of the job. Not to say that it isn't wonderful and, you know, but yeah no, there was, so like, I even think back to the Wiz Khalifa thing, and like, even the tents were just like, it was just bare bone, you know, it was just a place to hide before you get on stage, and you know, all of that, so.
1: Yeah, like, as you pointed out, I wouldn't trade it, it was cozy, but um, but not nearly the Hollywood version, so. right, Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about your advocacy for uh, suicide prevention?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Um so I think I'm, you know, mentioned early on, like, sort of this cultural moment that we're at right now. And I say moment, but it's been going on for, I think, years now. I mean, I feel like I was almost born into it um, with this generation of tiger moms and everything like that. And I think that there are a lot of different factors that have led to rising suicide rates in our country. Um, I, think, I think one of the big culprits is the college ranking system, which then turned it into this numbers game where you completely miss the person who's actually applying. Um, And then, you know, the parenting trends that I think adapted almost to fit into this sort of college ranking thing, Um, I think social media has isolated us, as beautiful as it is and as much as I love talking to my fans about, you know, that's how we connect and everything. So I think that there, it's almost become this like perfect storm of of being in a pressure cooker, uh, you know, topped with the the social media and the isolation and just everything and but it it really became an issue for me uh you know I'd certainly been battling depression in high school I think because I felt I started to feel so out of place at some point um and and this was even while I was technically doing what I was supposed to do like I I signed up for the science courses I was supposed to sign up for like it wasn't that I was like flailing like it wasn't like anyone would have looked at me and went oh she's depressed like i was playing the game but it came at such a cost and i felt so um unseen or that if i was doing what i really wanted to do somehow my life wouldn't be enough or i would fail or i wouldn't get to move to nashville or what you know whatever it was that day um and so it struck home we, you know, I grew up near the Golden Gate Bridge um, and it struck home my senior year. Actually, I knew someone every single year of high school, which is so messed up the more I think about it, but uh, it was a friend, it was a close friend that i would known since kindergarten, preschool, um, who jumped at the second semester of senior year. Um, and this was so much, she was already accepted to college. She was art. you know, it was, but I think she just felt trapped by the world. Um, you know, and I, it's, I mean, it still makes me speechless to this day. It's like, I think back to finding that out. Um, but I think what really pushed me and all of the, the all of her friends that did get involved, cause it became like this group movement. It's almost like she passed and we were like, Oh, we have to do something like the, It was too, like, it, I, I don't know if like just God intervened and all of us were like, okay, it's time. This gotta stop. <laughs> and, um, I think part of what motivated us was the reaction from the public, from elected officials, from the board of the Golden Gate Bridge um, and it was so, it seemed so I, I know that this would never be anyone's intention to be this heartless. But how it came across at the time was it just came, it was, it felt heartless, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we heard like, oh, well, like was, was Casey in the drugs or was she, da da you know, and so all of her friends are like, say it to my face, you know, <laughs> and it was, but also like, oh, well, like, did she, you know, she had to, Casey was adopted and so she'd gone through therapy as a kid, like, oh, well, like, did she have behavioral problems? Like she'd been through therapy and it's like how does any of that make it okay? And how does, you know, we all struggle as human beings and who's to judge one person's struggle? And, you know, and then when we first started the fight to get this um, this barrier on the Golden Gate Bridge, the biggest fight against it was like, oh, well, it will ruin the aesthetics of the bridge. And I was like, okay, so the wealthiest people and the elected officials in our area have literally told us that a bridge being pretty is more important than life, than life itself. Um, and it lit a fire. And I think part of the reason was, you know, we were grieving, like we'd missed our friend and we were upset at the response. Um, but I think for me, part of my motivation, and this this took me a few years to voice, like at the time I thought, oh, I wish I could have been on the bridge and talked her down and told her that there's so much worth living for and everything like that. But a few years out, I started to realize that what I really wanted to say to Casey was, yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think that's the other thing that we have to, and I I think part of the conversation is finally starting to change, where like, not just normalizing mental illness, but normalizing just everyday struggle. Like, it doesn't even have to be labeled a mental illness for you to be going through a a tough period in life. and yeah so i mean it was it was just like what i i think that's where my advocacy started it was this whole com it was this whole storm of like grieving a friend lost and also the fact that i had known someone every other year where it was like why are why are kids crying out and no one's listening why do people why do children you know and we felt like adults at the time but we were you know 16 17 like why are children dying and nothing is happening um like we're crying out for help and everyone's response is well were they a bad kid no Casey was brilliant and going to bentley college like you know it just but even so who can't like what if she was troubled is she less entitled to anyways i could go i could ramble about this i need to like condense my thoughts i (laughs) realized i'll just get so fired up on my pedestal but um yeah so it started um my advocacy work started at that point when Casey passed and uh, part of our senior year government class, we all had to get involved in local government in some way. Um, and by involved, I mean we had to like go to a town council meeting or something and, you know, see it in action. And I thought, oh I'm going to go pass a resolution. I was like, you know, I have to like, it kind of, it was in a weird way. It was like God's timing of like my brain was starting to understand local politics for the first time and sort of like what local taxes actually go towards and all of that kind of stuff. And my town was right on the water. Um, And so I went and called the town council and was like, hi, we're writing a resolution. Thanks. (laughs) Like there needs to be a barrier on the bridge. And I think some of it is I heard this saying um a few years back which i think hits the nail on the head is like the more you know the harder it gets mm-hmm. and and so i think part of why why all of casey's friends starting to speak up worked was because we didn't know any better we didn't know the battle we were about to face um we were just kids who were sad and were trying to figure out a solution and i think had we known the battle that we were going to go up against we might not have but we we were just like, well, government's supposed to work for us, and da 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 -da, you know, and this like, we're, we're almost a voting age, and this matters, and we just kind of, like, went for it, (laughs) (laughs) um, and that, and it was a difficult fight, I mean, it's taken years, and even then, like, the construction got delayed, so now it's projected to be finished by 2022, um, but, um, but they passed that resolution and and it's something i've kept doing and it's sort of driven a lot of my choices over life i became um we at vanderbilt we called them view sectors um because v-u haha get it um but you know we were basically we had to do some we were mentors to the freshmen and we'll get paired up and we had to do suicide training and we we called ourselves the experts on the experts like we knew that we couldn't solve mental health but we could figure out how to refer a kid to a counselor Mm -hmm. and normalize seeking therapy and so there have been all sorts of decisions that it's just continued to inform over time as i've it's just it's it's always a part of my decision making It, it literally affects everything i do um and you know i I would have hoped, looking back on childhood, that it would be farther along than we are now, but I think social media has contributed to that, but I will say, um, you know, something positive that as we are in this insane election season and just see people yelling at each other, it was a bipartisan committee that secured that final bit of funding for the for the barrier. And so I think another thing is, you know, yeah, the more you know, the harder it gets. And so maybe we all just need to be 17 again. And if we feel like we deserve something or we have something we wanna fight for, call your elected official. Your life matters, your voice matters. And I think that's what's exciting about the barrier too, is not just that it will physically save lives, um, that it will physically keep people from falling to their death off the bridge, it's also a symbol it says that as a society we're putting our money where our mouth is Mm -hmm. um you know because even in the midst of like school shootings i get so tired of seeing you know some talking heads say well it's a mental health issue and then i'm like okay well then what are you doing about it you know like oh well jumping off the bridge is a mental health issue i'm like okay well, do something about it you know and i think that barrier physically saves lives and also sends a message to everyone that says yeah we value your life this is this is millions of dollars and we are putting it towards saving your lives because you matter um and you know yeah so it's it's crazy it's crazy times (laughs) to be living in but that's it's been a big theme in my life and you know i am i feel like casey has guided me and and her friends along the way and i'm I am so grateful for her path, and I still miss her. obviously, I wish that she were still here, but I am so grateful that something beautiful could come out of such a tragedy and um you know it 's not I think people think of suicide as a way out it 's not it's death um, but it 's also your brain tricking you like it 's also a chemical trick, and so anyways like i said i'm starting to ramble again this we could have spent the whole podcast on this but (laughs) absolutely (laughs) and i will say now too like like i said i am not you know i do not have my master's in therapy i do not whatever i i do have some psych training but i like that term that we learned at vanderbilt of like being the expert on the experts and so to anyone listening to this podcast if you don't know where to go i have people message me all the time and you can absolutely send me a message on facebook on instagram a dm i actually do read all of my dms um reach out to me if you don't know where to turn and i can certainly turn you to a lifeline um there's also a lot of community resources that people don't realize are there i mean my my own church here in nashville has um counseling for like ten dollars wow. you know it doesn't have to you know it's not a fancy 200 hundred dollar an hour therapist but it's somebody that can guide you you know, a trained professional for $10. And there's a lot out there like that. And so to anyone listening, if you are struggling, if you know someone who's struggling, I would be honored to be a starting point and at least help you point towards something that could be positive for
1: you. Wow. That's a touching story and a touching tribute to your friend and sorry for the loss. Thank you. Appreciate that. So um, what have you learned about yourself? throughout your journey?
0: Hmm. Good question. Um, I think I've learned that I'm a lot tougher than I think. <laughs> um, but I, I think I've learned what my self-worth is. Um, you know, like even, and don't get me wrong, I still full-blown have that imposter syndrome that likes to rear its ugly head. But, you know, I think I I started to, really especially in the past couple of years I think as I was as, as I started touring and meeting people from across the country I sort of started to realize no this really is my path like I really do belong here um you know I am worthy of love I am worthy of a job that I love um actually you know as someone whose faith has guided me so much along the way my college pastor said something to me that if you're not religious you can take this in another way but he was like you know Jesus doesn't just love you. He likes you. He would hang out with you. Like you as a person are perfect the way you were made. And and I you know, I think it's just now in adulthood that I'm finally accepting those words of you know, I'm okay the way I am. I can walk into a room and I don't need to obsess over whether everyone likes me. I'm, I'm good enough the way God made me, um, or higher power, or just as you were born, however it is that you feel comfortable sort of phrasing that. Um, so I think that's something I've learned about myself is that just like, I'm enough, just me here on my own. I'm enough. I'm tough enough to do this. I'm passionate enough to do this. Just little old me as myself is enough. Um, so. I keep, and like I said, when imposter syndrome rears its ugly head, I have to just like remind myself of like, you are still enough. <laughs> and it'll come at the most random time. I was playing wood songs last year up in Kentucky, which is a huge broadcast. So like, I think it goes to like a million homes or something. And I didn't turn to my guitarist before we walked on stage and I was like, Miami good. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <Lockwood. laughs> you know, but I mean, so it's, it's still going to rear my head, but I, I, I think I finally, uh, at this point in my life in the past, few years have finally started to actually internalize that and go no you know what you are enough you are uh, enough so
2: and to that point we had a psychologist on who was a guest who uh, has focused on and written about imposter syndrome and Mm -hmm. one of the points that she made was that it never really goes away you know that it will always be there it's just something that you have to get uh, you know accept and get better at responding to
0: yep absolutely and I think that it can certainly be harnessed too. like I think that there is a sense of you know the way Bette Midler phrased sort of her her own version of imposter syndrome was to be in the entertainment industry you have to believe that you're the greatest thing since sliced bread but like also know that you're not (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those things where like you have to have the confidence of being like I'm fabulous like to walk into a room and ask for a show or whatever But that imposter syndrome can lead you to push yourself to be better because if you constantly think you're not enough then you are going to wake up and play the banjo every day and make sure that you're keeping your skill up or right or you know whatever it is that you're working on in that season um and so i think i'm at a point where i try to when it rears its head i try to channel that into being more disciplined at my craft in whatever way i need to at that moment um So, but that's not to say I'm never gonna turn to my guitarist again and be like, am I good? Can I sing?
1: What (laughs) it reminds me of is the battle of the little men or women on your shoulder that you see in the cartoons, and you just have to have the side that vouches for you to win the argument more times than not. (laughs)
0: 100%. Yeah, and that's another thing like about, um, I think about being in any industry, um, you know, business, tech, music, arts, whatever, um, you you need to get comfortable with hearing the word no. And I think that we are a society of such instant gratification that, you know, hearing no, it doesn't, you know, even pre-social media and instant gratification, nobody likes to feel no, there's discomfort in that. It's not fun. But I think something I've learned along the way is to not take the no's personally. Like I think, part I think back to like booking my earliest shows and I think part of the exhaustion was I was, anticipating and fearing hearing no, but that was such a loaded no. I projected so much into that no. And it was like, okay, well, if, they, if they're if they saying no, it's not just no right now, it's no and, you know, how dare you, why would you even think you were worthy of asking for this? And why, like, I would just load all of this stuff onto it when really I just needed to take it at face value and be like, oh, okay. So I'll like try again later or try somewhere else. You know, and that's and that's not to say that I like to hear no now. Nobody wants to hear no in their life. But if you can learn to like unpack it a little and not put all of your fears and anxieties into the no and just take it as a, okay, not right now. You know, I, I didn't get into CMA Fest the first time I applied. I wasn't, you know, and I look back, I wasn't ready. I needed to, that house band, all those other things that I was doing you know, and then I came back around and was like, I'm still here, like, hi. And then I, you know, and now CMA Fest isn't every year thing for me. So it's, you know, and like I said, I think that hearing the word no, if you channel it sort of like you can use it for good in the same way that you use that imposter syndrome where it can just, you know, be another motivator of like, oh, all right, well, I need to, I need to keep honing my craft. I need to keep pushing for this. So
1: and this might be a landmine or landmine field to navigate with this question but um have you ever in your experience with other musicians or even yourself have you noticed that some people choose not to do the audition or take that chance just to avoid the no
0: absolutely um and there's actually one case i have a, a dear friend from college who she should she should be a tony award winner right now um i remember even my family came to see she was in my musical theater troupe and to this day she is in my opinion, one of the most talented people I know. And, you know, my own family has flown into Nashville to watch me do this performance at college. And they're like, oh my God, but your friend was so good. And I'm like, <laughs> like and she, we actually had a discussion a few weeks ago and I was just like, girl, like it hadn't been that long. i just like, jump back in the saddle. And she is thinking about it, but it, the fear paralyzed her. And it certainly did for me at times too, I think, you know, if there's one thing I wish I could tell my 17-year-old self, it would be like, just go for it. Just do it. Like, it doesn't matter, you know, like, but you know, that had to, that strength had to come over time, but I, I, I have definitely seen it. I think, I feel like I'm going to butcher this saying, but I think like fear killed more doubt, killed more dreams than failure ever did. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's doubt. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's, It's shocking to see because I think it's always so much easier with that imposter syndrome, it's so much easier to see everyone else's talent. So I think it also blows my mind because they're doubting themselves and all I'm seeing is, oh my God, they're like way better than me. They quit, like what? Mm -hmm. Um, But I've tried to use it as as a learning tool and just say like, well, you know, if I'm looking at them thinking that, then maybe there's someone looking at me thinking that about me and I need to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways yeah I mean it's and I was told that you know like getting out of school people warned me they were like you know like the the field will thin over time like there's always a new busload of you know bubbly new to town bright eyed whatever and the ones that you started with will, you know and I haven't it's just been a few years but I've seen so many people that are just true artists in their soul and they just like, you know, and so I guess this is also my shout out to like, you guys come back to town. It's still great. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, I guess it is kind of a landmine question in that sense. But it, I mean, that is a very real thing. Um, and I, and that one girl from, from college and my musical theater troupe, I mean, I still think about it. And like I said, we, you know, did like a catch up FaceTime the other week and I, I almost grilled her on it. And I'm like, my family, they're better than I am. Like, you need to go audition for Broadway. <laughs> like, you just you know? And she she admitted it. She was like, no, I mean, it's just paralyzing anxiety. Like she knows exactly what it is. That's just a journey that she has to take for herself. And, and hopefully she will because she's magnificent. But um, yeah, like I said, I just try to use that as a learning tool and go, okay, well, if I'm thinking that about her, someone's thinking that about me and I just gotta keep pushing.
1: I might have to edit this out after the fact, but um, she might not want me to reveal it, want me revealing it. But my wife has a voice that she could, if not a lead singer, she could definitely be like the in a hip-hop song when they drop into the chorus. Like, sure. she has a beautiful voice. Yeah. But she will not sing in front of other people for anything. I, I've tried.
0: Well, tell her it's never too late. I mean, I genuinely believe that. I mean, I have a dear friend who is, uh, you know, she's almost like my cool big sister. And um, she's, I you know, I don't say people's age lightly because I know that's such a weird thing in this industry, um, especially being... Still being young, we're like, I don't mean to sound flippant about it, because I'm sure it'll freak me out at some point in my life. But she played the Opry for the first time last year and she's fifty-three.
1: Oh
0: wow. You know, and and she's someone that just never cared. Like she was just like, age is a number, who cares? Like, literally, and she's someone that she came to Nashville for music, but then ended up having a career in journalism and then got back into it in her mid thirties. Um, And so kind of started in her mid thirties where I started at 16, 17. Um, but she continues to inspire me just her, her raw talent, honestly, but also just the way that she kind of just lets stuff roll off and go like, screw it. I'm doing what I love. And no, one's going to tell me." I don't, I'll take no a million times. I'll keep, who cares? And, um, sure enough. She's played, she's actually, she's played the opera three or four times now. Like it wasn't just once, it was multiple. And, and I love stories like that because I think that is, and I think our society is also growing up a little bit when it comes to age and who cares, you know, I think about sex in the city and it was such a big deal to be talking about women dating in their forties. <laughs> like, LOL. like as if we suddenly die when we turn 40, I hope not, like. scandalous. Yeah, um, like the one, you know, the one Harry met Like, I'm going to be 40 in eight years, um, you know. And so, I mean, I think that's one of those things that the stigma has gone away over time. But I think it's also gone away because of people like my friends who are like, "Yeah, I don't care." <laughs>
1: like, you know, awesome. like, oh,
0: you don't want to sign me right now? Watch me go play the Opry. Bye. Like, it just sort of well, the always- biggest stage in country music multiple times in a year. Um, so.
1: I was the opposite. See, I was a horrible singer, but I would sing in front of anyone for a time. I won't do it anymore.
2: But
1: I was the kid that shouted at the top of their lungs when they were doing the like children's choir thinking that they were helping.
0: Yeah.
1: And I was just really just shouting.
0: You were, you were helping.
1: <laughs> so what advice would you have for a, a Lauren? Did you have a question?
0: No.
1: Go ahead. Oh. Uh, what advice do you have for an aspiring musician or performer?
0: Oof, um, probably the biggest one is not to take no seriously or uh personally not serious I mean take it seriously but not personally
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um like I wish I had taken it less personally early on um and to just keep going um I think another phrase that I heard uh I think it was at a bluebird show someone said being in music and really I think honestly this is probably anyone in the arts because the arts by nature is so volatile at times, um, that being a a musician in Nashville is not, it's like being a prize cage fighter. It's not about throwing the toughest punch, it's about staying in the cage long enough to throw the final punch.
2: Hmm.
0: And and I love that. Um, Like it's not about, this isn't a sprint, this is a marathon. Because also, you know, Yeah, I've I've started to make it now, like I'm making an income, I've got fans, I have all of, you know, I have a place in Nashville and everything like that, but that's not, it's not like the end of a movie, like this is something that I want to do for the rest of my life, and so I think that whole marathon cage fighter metaphor is important not just to encourage you on the days where you feel like you're not making it, but also to continue to encourage you even when you are making it to to always be working on yourself and bettering yourself and, you know, never stop learning, never stop growing. and Because um, especially in the arts, there's no, it's not like we're trying to solve a math problem. There's no one answer. There's always a new piece of art that can be created. Um, so keep going.
1: I like that. Um, so Lauren, do you want to do the... Uh... Usual question.
2: <laughs> so, one of Kevin and I actually met in grad school sure. studying expert performance. And oh, wow. similar to what you were saying about kind of the stigma of age, there's also been this stigma and viewpoint regarding talent. And, you know, if you have talent, what that affords you versus can you nurture abilities and expertise and development? And so, we were actually trained under someone who believed that talent. Really wasn't necessarily at all necessary, really at all. Um, that that you could, um, if you devoted kind of the right investment and had the right resources, you could pursue whatever goals that you had. And then certainly there are people on the other end of the continuum that believe that talent is a real thing and want to identify talent and all that. The music industry, I think, is one of those places, right, where maybe the looking for talent and certain kind of elements of that might still be a piece of it. So we're always curious to ask our guests what their thoughts are and how much they think kind of the nurture side has to do with things and how much the nature side has to do with it.
0: I think, um, I'm, you know, I'm sort of like pulling back on like the sight classes from college. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I'm kind of like... I think it's kind of like how personality is a combination of nature and nurture. I think it's the same thing for success in the arts, where, um, you know, the saying around town in Nashville, um, in the songwriters community is that it's 10% talent and 90% hard work. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's definitely talent, like, you you know, somebody tone deaf isn't going to make it onto the Opry stage, <laughs> or, you know, like, there is that sense. but there are a million people. I mean, look how, how many seasons of American Idol are we in? There are countless people in this country that are gifted beyond words. Yes. But at the end of the day, you have to, it is sort of that cage fighter thing of like, you just have to keep going. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of like the, the music industry will beat you up and you either let it knock you over or you use it to make you stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for me, like, I know for a fact growing up that I wasn't you know I wasn't a Mariah Carey with like a seven octave range I wasn't you know I wasn't a virtuoso it's not like i was it's not like I was um Bela Fleck or or a you know Nickel Creek or something where I was like the fastest banjo player at twelve like it was i'm and that's not to diminish my own talent i I do believe in myself and my abilities, but i do believe that i have the career that i have now because i literally kept going (laughs) um another another little sort of tidbit i have i've i'm very blessed to have just magnificently wise people in my life and another sort of golden nugget that i found along the way um except that i just had a michael scott moment (laughs) (laughs) And no for any reason under any circumstance whatever that episode is um Oh, I got it okay uh, winners are failures who didn't know when to quit and I just like I'm not ever gonna take a hint like I just you know like it's just I'm not going anywhere uh, you, like sorry Nashville you can't get rid of me like I, I'm just um, so yeah so I mean I really think it is a true combination of both and like I said the the sort of the the joke in Nashville is that it's 10% talent 90% hard work and I think that you know we could probably argue both ways forever. And and I think there are always extenuating circumstances in every case too. Of you know, I mean, I I know a friend who is signed with uh, Big Machine now and had his first single come out in June, and that was very exciting. And but he and he's in his thirties, but he sh- he should have been famous at eighteen. But he there wasn't, he didn't have money behind him to get to Nashville. Like he, he, he didn't, he did come out of American Idol and he, the first time he went on a plane was for that audition, you know? And, and so I think, but at the end of the day, I think whether or not you have money or whether or not you have things pushing back against you, you know, persistence is the great equalizer. So, you know, I think that's the other thing that I would tell people of like, you know, I've definitely had some advantages, but there are things that, I was far behind on that I really had to fight for and everybody will have those gives and takes in their life and to some degree they kind of don't matter you just have to keep going um, like it just kind of you just keep pushing and especially you know I was ragging on social media for all the suicide stuff and mental health but we are sort of in this DIY culture of I can go straight to my fans I mean, hell, that's how I met you all. Like that yeah. was, I started following who you guys were posting and like thought your episodes were really interested and we just sort of started this organic dialogue <laughs> and that's how I booked festivals too. And so, you know, I think that we are in an age where it is more possible to be DIY about it than it has in the past. Like you don't have to wait for anyone's permission to be a professional musician. You just, you're waiting for your own position, uh, permission, to just stand up and go, okay, I am a musician now. (laughs) Ta-da. And it
2: crosses boundaries too. There's this been, so I'm in New York City and there's been this wonderful story on fairly recently of a, dance a dance teacher in I believe it was one of the countries in Africa that's very poor and he basically like out of his home created this dance studio to help train these you know young ballet dancers and there was a video that went viral of this one young boy who was doing like a ballet kind of um uh Dance, you know, just for a few minutes, and yeah. it, of course, you know, got picked up here by some of the dancers here in New York City, and now he's gonna, I think, be coming here, and and they've kind of featured this dance
0: studio that's across the world. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's you never know. Well, I, I think about um, there was, you know, and 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 even my dad said this to me the other day because we were talking about how like it always feels like you're an overnight success, but it, it, you know, it comes after working really hard. And you know, and I was laughing at like, I just felt like all of a sudden this summer I, um, it's been a big summer for me. Like I had a featured American songwriter. I've been on the ACMs for four weeks now. Like there's been a lot of like really groundbreaking stuff for me where I'm like, Oh, I guess I'm a musician. <laughs> like, you know. But it's, you know, come after time. Um, but you know, there's that, um, that, I think TikTok star Sarah Cooper that does all those comedy videos where she like edits political talking heads mm-hmm. and, impressions and stuff, and she hosted Jimmy Kimmel last week while he was out. And like a year ago, she was just you know like editing the videos for fun, you know. And I and I love that. I Like I think that yes, social media can be isolating, but there is something fun about that. Like I mean, I hundred percent attribute everything that's happened for me this summer during COVID with American Songwriter and all that to all my fans sort of still propping me up on social media mm-hmm. and, and creating like a groundswell that then someone like American Songwriter comes in. And so it, it's, I mean, and in that sense, it's it's exciting. Like it motivates me to get like, oh, I wonder what's gonna happen today. Like you never know who you're <laughs> gonna talk to, what fan you're gonna meet, who's gonna message you, who's gonna, what playlist you're gonna pop up on. Like, it's just sort of this like, Sarah Cooper in less than a year is hosting Kimmel. Like the world absolutely. is our oyster. Um, it's uh, amazing stuff, so. absolutely.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's one of my favorite parts is uh, the connections that have been made because of social media. So.
2: I re- I actually read something recently that, you know, the whole idea of six degrees of separation and now kind of the argument yeah, is that it's too. maybe more like 3.57 or something weird like that. <laughs> oh Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, it is, we are, we are also deeply connected. And, and I think maybe like to come back to sort of the mental health and the suicide note, I think that if we can remember that social media is not always real and that it is only showing our best mm-hmm. um, but I you know also use social media like I want to repeat this again and I'm completely serious like use it to connect with people and I can be one of those people if you want to DM me and ask for advice on where to go for mental health stuff or how to you know talk to a fa- friend or family member like I think that there's so much potential there if we can tap into it for that connection.
2: Sure. If we can use it for good. Right.
0: Yeah. So So what do
2: you think is, sorry, you're probably going to ask this question, Kevin, I'm just going to steal your thunder. Uh, (laughs) What do you think is the biggest takeaway from your story
0: Lockwood? Um, you know, I think come at life with a little bit of naivete and And let that and and come at the world with innocent eyes believing that anything is possible because it is and that's not to say that the road's not going to be difficult you're not going to have to walk through storms and hear that uncomfortable word no or whatever it might be but um believe with the same excitement that you're 16 or 17 year old self did getting on a high school where you're like, oh, the world is whether you're starting college or whatever, it's like every when you're a senior in high school and you have that like, I'm about to enter life, like <laughs> hold on to that. Hold on to that like kind of naive confidence and, and hold it with you. Um, because when like this is so corny and cliche, but it's I've had to sort of take the the long way around to get back to this. But like, if you believe in yourself, anything is possible. Um, so just block out how hard the world tells you it is, and just do what you need to do.
1: Awesome, sage advice. Uh, someone complimented to, to me.
0: Find myself <laughs> advice.
1: Sure. And someone complimented me the other day um, that they were impressed with my inclination to just go for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I had to develop over time, but I think that it kind of alludes to what you're saying. Yeah. Stop pulling your own constraints or stop holding yourself back. Well, Lockwood, uh, we thank you for being with us and uh, we love your story.
0: Is it okay? Also, I totally just screenshot it. I might Instagram this and plug it, but no, thank you so much for having me on. Like I said, it was fun to just kind of how we connected and sort of in the world of social media in the middle of COVID. Um, I love... I love y'all's message. I think it's really cool. I don't think I haven't seen another podcast out there doing it. So, well, well, thank uh, you. Yeah, it was really fun to talk to you guys.
1: The Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, all rights reserved.